It's time now for the complete story with Rich and Dick Bott, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here is Rich and Dick Bott with today's complete story. Well, well, I tell you what, now we're off and running into the new year, aren't we? Yesterday, we sure are. Happy New Year. Yesterday was New Year's. Did you have a good New Year's? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, here we go. 2018. Rich, there was a recording that came into my possession years ago, and um, it was by the Steels. I don't recall that I ever heard them in person, but when I heard the recording, I thought, that really, there's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of good common sense in that. And uh, it's a country song. It's well, kind of, what do you call that kind of music? Is it? Yeah. Kind country? of country. But, but is this something out of your private collection from well, way back? Well, that's true. That's true. Uh, but I remember when I first heard it, I thought, you know, that really, the words, the lyrics, it makes sense. And if, if you don't like if you don't like country gospel, forget it. Listen to the words, folks, because they are saying something about the way America used to be. Uh, you know, none of us really want to go back, but we want things decent. Well, we want you a revival. Want, you want, well, yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. You want a revival. We want a restoration for a biblical yeah. roots of that's America. That's exactly right. And you want a moral and a family and where faith and all of that is absolutely, uh, absolutely the Faith, family, and freedom. Faith, family, and freedom. There you go. So anyway, this song, now listen to it, folks. It's called I Want America Back. Here it is. Something is wrong with America She once held the Bible as her conscience and guide But we've allowed those who hold nothing to be sacred Like Sodom of old to push morals aside Where are the men? once stood for right and the women who championed their cause we must return to the values we left before this country we love is totally Scripture says, Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. And America has forgotten the godly foundation upon which she was built. Something is wrong. Our children are asked to attend public schools that in many cases resemble war zones without even the most basic right of any soldier. 
the right to pray to the God of heaven. Many times the wild-eyed, drug-addicted, gun-carrying teenager is allowed to stay in school while our Supreme Court decided to expel God from the classroom over 30 years ago. Something is wrong. Television daily bombards the senses of our nation with the idea that wrong is right, that the abnormal is normal, that the abhorrent is acceptable, and that what God calls an abomination is nothing more than an alternate lifestyle. And it's had an effect. 30 years ago, the number one television program in America was The Andy Griffith Show. Look what we have today. Something is wrong when our government can pass out contraceptives to children in school without parental consent, and yet the Gideons can no longer pass out the Bible on campus. Something is wrong when our leaders can say to your children and mine that premarital sex is all right as long as it's safe. Yes, something is wrong. I, for one, am ready for a change. I will say to my government, I'm not raising dogs at my house. I'm raising children created in the image and the likeness of Almighty God, and I'm going to teach them the Bible. If the Bible says it's right, it's right. And if the Bible says it's wrong, it's wrong. The only hope that America has is that godly men and women of character will stand together as one mighty army and declare to the immoral, the impure, the obscene, and the foul, your days of unlimited access to the minds of America are over. The army of God that has been silent too long is taking America back. I think I think I speak for a tremendous number of people, and it doesn't matter about the color of your skin. What you want is what is right, and you want boys and girls to be raised by parents, and not institutions, and you want honesty, and you want to be able to explore ideas and opinions and find out what is right and what is wrong based on common sense. That's what that song brings us to, isn't it? Well, it really is, Dad. And so I heard someone say that we have had a reprieve for a revival. In other words, uh, before this last election, things were headed down a rocky, slippery slope towards an abandonment of religious liberty and, and a, a containment of religious liberty in our, in our nation. And that has been kept open for now. Yeah. And the church— and 
people of faith need to be involved in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and sharing the word of God with others to help lay the lay the foundation for God to send a great awakening style revival. Uh, Rich, and that's uh, what's needed. Paul Harvey recorded something years ago and it was about the men who was our founders and what they did, hmm. the sacrifices they made and what it really cost them to allow us to have the freedom and the constitution and the co-equal branches of government that somehow are not functioning the way they were intended to. But uh, let's hear that now. It's Paul Harvey and uh, talking about these things. Here it is. Americans, the how and the why of our beloved republic are so much better known and understood than the who. The United States of America was born in 1776, but it was conceived 169 years before that. The earliest settlers had watered the New World with much sweat. They had built substantial holdings for themselves, for their families. And when the time came to separate themselves from a tyranny an ocean away, at best it meant starting all over again after the ravages of war. Researching what you're about to hear gave a whole new dimension to my reverence for our nation's first citizens. All others of the world's revolutions, before and since, were initiated by men who had nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. Our founders had everything to lose and nothing to gain, except one thing. Hello, Americans. I'm Paul Harvey. You remember the cherry tree fiction. A long time after you have forgotten the more earth-shaking history-making episodes in the life of George Washington. You have misplaced in your memory the details of Ben Franklin's statesmanship, but you remember his flying a kite. Joyce Kilmer was a great military hero. But the only thing you personally recall about him is his poetic tribute to trees. Maybe of this current decade, that which will be remembered best will not be its wars and its moon rockets or its crumbling frontiers or the giants who lived and died. Maybe all that will survive to linger in the day-by-day -day vocabulary of generations yet unborn may be the, the songs of a Memphis minstrel or the reincarnation of electric automobiles. But for any eve of the 4th of July, I, Paul Harvey, do herewith bequeath unto you something to remember. You may not be able to quote one line from the Declaration of Independence at this moment. Henceforth, you'll always be able to quote at least one line. It's in the last paragraph where you will recall when I remind you, it says, We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. In the Pennsylvania State House that's now called Independence Hall in Philadelphia, the best men from each of the colonies sat down together. This was a very fortunate hour in our nation's history, one of those rare occasions in the lives of men when we had greatness to spare. These were men of means, well-educated, 24 were lawyers and jurists, nine were farmers, owners of large plantations. On June 11, a committee sat down to draw up a declaration of independence. We were going to tell the British fatherland, no more rule by redcoats. Below the dam of ruthless foreign rule, the stream of freedom was running shallow and muddy. And we were going to light a fuse to dynamite that dam. 
This pact, as Burke later put it, was a partnership between the living and the dead and the yet unborn. There was no bigotry, there was no demagoguery in this group. All had shared hardships. Jefferson finished a draft of the document in 17 days. Congress adopted it in July, and so much is familiar history. But now, King George III had denounced all rebels in America as traitors. Punishment for treason was hanging. The names now so familiar to you from the several signatures on that Declaration of Independence, the names were kept secret for six months for each knew the full meaning of that magnificent last paragraph in which his signature pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. Fifty-six men placed their names beneath that pledge. Fifty-six men knew when they signed that they were risking everything. They knew if they won this fight, the best they could expect would be years of hardship in a struggling nation. And if they lost, they'd face a hangman's rope. But they signed the pledge. And here is the documented fate of that gallant 56. Carter Braxton of Virginia, wealthy planter, trader, saw his ships swept from the seas. To pay his debts, he lost his home and all of his properties and died in rags. Thomas Lynch, Jr., who signed that pledge, was a third-generation rice grower, aristocrat, large plantation owner. After he signed, his health failed. His wife and he set out for France to regain his failing health. Their ship never got to France, was never heard from again. Thomas McKean of Delaware was so harassed by the enemy that he was forced to move his family five times in five months. He served in Congress without pay, his family in poverty and in hiding. Vandals looted the properties of Ellery and Clymer and Hall and Gwinnett and Walton and Hayward and Rutledge and Middleton. Thomas Nelson, Jr. of Virginia, raised $2 million on his own signature to provision our allies, the French fleet. After the war, he personally paid back the loans, wiped out his entire estate, and he was never reimbursed by his government. In the final battle for Yorktown, he, Nelson, urged General Washington to fire on his, Nelson's own home, which was occupied by Cornwallis. It was destroyed. Thomas Nelson, Jr. had pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. The Hessians seized the home of Francis Hopkinson of New Jersey. Francis Lewis had his home and everything destroyed, his wife imprisoned. She died within a few months. Richard Stockton, who signed that declaration, was captured, mistreated, his health broken to the extent that he died at 51. His estate was pillaged. Thomas Hayward, Jr. was captured when Charleston fell. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside while she was dying. Their 13 children fled in all directions for their lives. His fields and grist mill were laid waste. For more than a year, he lived in forests and caves and returned home after the war to find his wife dead, his children gone, his properties gone, and he died a few weeks later of exhaustion and a broken heart. Lewis Morris saw his land destroyed, his family scattered. Philip Livingston died within a few months from the hardships of the war. John Hancock, history remembers best due to a quirk of fate rather than anything he stood for, that great sweeping signature attesting to his vanity towers over the others. One of the wealthiest men in New England. 
and yet he stood outside Boston one terrible night of the war and he said burn Boston though it makes John Hancock a beggar if the public good requires it so he too lived up to the pledge of the 56 few were long to survive five were captured by the British and tortured before they died 12 had their homes from Rhode Island to Charleston sacked, looted, occupied by the enemy or burned. Two lost their sons in the army. One had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 died in the war from its hardships or from its more merciful bullets. I don't know what impression you had had of the men who met that summer in Philadelphia. But I think it's important that we remember this about them. They were not poor men. They were not wild-eyed pirates. These were men of means. They were rich men, most of them, and had enjoyed much ease and luxury in their personal living. Not hungry men, certainly not terrorists, not irresponsible malcontents, not fanatical incendiaries. These men were prosperous men wealthy landowners. They were substantially secure in their prosperity. They had everything to lose. But they considered liberty, and this is as much as I shall say of it. They had learned that liberty is so much more important than security, that they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And they fulfilled their pledge. They paid the price and freedom was born. But you see, freedom was born if we can keep it. Freedom was born if we can keep it. Now, Rich, I don't think there's anything that we've ever broadcast that has touched the nerve of our listening audience as much as the story of Francis Scott Key when he was writing the national anthem. Listen to this, folks, and then I want you to think why we are so irritated when we hear people disrespecting the American flag that is a symbol of the freedom we enjoy, even to disagree with each other. Here it is. There was a lawyer once. His name was Francis Scott Key. He penned a song that I'm sure you're aware of. You've seen it. It's in most hymnals throughout our churches. It's called the National Anthem. It is our song as an American. We go, however, to a ball game. We stand in our church services and we sing the words of that song. And they float over our minds and our lips and we don't even realize what we're singing. Most of us have memorized it as a child, but we've never really thought about what it means. Let me tell you a story. Francis Scott Key was a lawyer in Baltimore. The colonies were engaged in vicious conflict with the mother country, Britain. Because of this conflict and the protractedness of it, they had accumulated prisoners on both sides. The American colonies had prisoners and the British had prisoners. And the American government initiated a move. They went to the British and they said, let us negotiate for the release of these prisoners. They said, we want to send a man out to discuss this with you. They were holding the American prisoners in boats about a thousand yards offshore. And they said, we want to send a man by the name of Francis Scott Key. He will come out and negotiate to see if we can make a mutual exchange. 
On the appointed day in a rowboat, he went out to this boat and he negotiated with the British officials. And they reached a conclusion that men could be exchanged on a one-for-one -one basis. Francis Scott Key, jubilant with the fact that he'd been successful, went down below in the boats and what he found was a cargo hold full of humanity, men. And he said, men, I've got news for you tonight, you're free. He said, tonight I have negotiated successfully your return to the colonies. He said, you'll be taken out of this boat, out of this filth, out of your chains. As he went back up on board to arrange for their passage to the shore, the admiral came and he said, we have a slight problem. He said, we will still honor our commitment to release these men, but it'll be merely academic after tonight. It won't matter. And Francis Scott Key said, what do you mean? He said, well, Mr. Key, he said, tonight we have laid an ultimatum upon the colonies. Your people will either capitulate and lay down the colors of that flag that you think so much of, or you see that fort right over there, Fort Henry? He said, we're going to remove it from the face of the earth. He said, how are you going to do that? He said, if you will, scan the horizon of the sea. And as he looked, he could see hundreds of little dots. And he said, that's the entire British war fleet. He said, all of the gunpowder, all of the armament is being called upon to demolish that fort. It will be here within striking distance in a matter of about two and a half hours. He said, the war is over. These men would be free anyway. He said, you can't shell that fort. He said, that's, that's a large fort. He said, it's full of women and children. He says, it's predominantly not a military fort. They said, don't worry about it. They said, we've left them a way out. And he said, what's that? He said, do you see that flag way up on the rampart? He said, we have told them that if they will lower that flag, the shelling will stop immediately. And we'll know that they've surrendered, and you'll now be under British rule. Francis Scott Key went down below and told the men what was about to happen. And they said, how many ships? He said, hundreds. The ships got closer. Francis Scott Key went back up on top and he said, men, I'll shout down to you what's going on as we watch. As twilight began to fall and as the haze hung over the ocean as it does at sunset, suddenly the British war fleet unleashed. <clears throat> he says, the sound was deafening. There were so many guns that there were no reliefs. He said it was absolutely impossible to talk or hear. He said suddenly the sky, although dark, was suddenly lit. And he says from down below, all he could hear the men, the prisoners, saying was, tell us where the flag is. What have they done with the flag? Is the flag still flying over the rampart? Tell us. One hour, two hours, three hours into the shelling, Every time the bomb would explode and it would be close to the flag, they could see the flag in the illuminated red glare of that bomb. And Francis Scott Key would report down to the men below, it's still up. It's not down. The admiral came and he said, your people are insane. He said, what's the matter with them? He said, don't they understand this is an impossible situation? 
Francis Scott Key said he remembered what George Washington had said. He said the thing that sets the American Christian apart from all other people in the world is he will die on his feet before he'll live on his knees. The Admiral said we have now instructed all of the guns to focus on the rampart to take that flag down. He said we don't understand something. Our reconnaissance tells us that that flag has been hit directly again and again and again, and yet it's still flying. We don't understand that. But he said, now we're about to bring every gun for the next three hours to bear on that point. Francis Scott, he said the barrage was unmerciful. All that he could hear was the men down below praying. The prayer. God, keep that flag flying where we last saw it. Sunrise came. He said there was a heavy mist hanging over the land, but the rampart was tall enough. There stood the flag, completely nondescript, in shreds. The flagpole itself was at a crazy angle, but the flag was still at the top. Francis Scott Key went aboard and immediately went into Fort Henry to see what had happened. And what he found had happened was that that flagpole and that flag had suffered repetitious direct hits. And when hit had fallen. But men, fathers, who knew what it meant for that flag to be on the ground although knowing that all of the British guns were trained on it, walked over and held it up humanly until they died. Their bodies were removed and others took their place. Francis Scott Key said what held that flagpole in place at that unusual angle were Patriots' bodies. He penned the song, Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming or the rocket's red glare the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that the flag was still there oh say does that star-spangled banner yet fly and wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. The debt was demanded, the price it was paid. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light What so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the red. 
That says it all, doesn't it? That's a powerful way to begin the new year. This is Dick and Rich Bott with this chapter of the complete story to start a new year, and we'll see you later.